Welcome to the Dream Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians Day today. I'm going to break this up into two weeks, I think, because um, there's no way we're going to get to both. So um, set, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit as you're turning there of some stuff that I've been writing, and, um, and then we'll go in, all right? But pay really close attention to this. This is, this is extremely important right here, what I'm about to read. Um, okay, Lent is the 40-day time period of grief that leads up to Easter, okay? We all know Lent, we've heard that. So Lent is the 40-day time period of grief that leads up to Easter. It's marked by fasting, prayer, denying yourself, repentance, putting to death your sin nature, etc. That's what that whole time period's about. So to make it clear, the 40 days leading up to Easter weekend are very Adam-focused. Do y'all hear a humming in this mic? Or is it just me? Perfect. Just me? I can deal with it. All right. So, so to make it clear, the 40 days leading up to Easter weekend that we call Lent are very Adam-focused. That's, that's the whole point of those 40 days is Adam nature, Adam nature, Adam nature, Adam nature. To be clear, this time period should be celebrated and utilized more than the postmodern church currently does. We should, we should recognize this leading up to Easter a lot more. But this is my issue with this. Okay, and this is where we're going to be today. I think it's because of where I'm sitting. So I'm going to move over a little bit because I hear a little hum. I know. I thought I could and I can't. So here's the, so here's the issue with that, okay? Is that there's another 40-day celebration on the other side of Easter. So there's 40 days before Easter, which is Lent. But then there's 40 days after Easter that leads up to the ascension that no one celebrates, no one even knows that's. No one even knew that until I just said that. Half of y'all had no idea that it was forty days between Easter and Ascension until I just said that, right? So, resurrection life is what Easter is about. It's about new world order, new kingdom access, and victory. This time period is very Christ likeness focused, and it's the forty days, as I just said, between resurrection and Ascension. Okay. How we honor those 40 days after Easter will determine the fruit that we bear from the next 10, which is ascension to Pentecost. All right, so let me, let me. So there's 40 days in the time period of Lent leading up to Easter, and it's all about Adam. You know what I mean? Like fasting, putting him to death, which we should do. But then you have Easter, and on the other side of Easter, there's another 40 days. And most of us celebrate Easter, and then at, at the end of Easter, we kind of close that book and move on with our life. So people, people before Easter will walk around with ashes on their head, and man, just like beating themselves up, and I'm just horrible, and I'm going to put that nature to death. But then after Easter, it's like, all right, that was fun. And I'm telling you today, if we don't honor the 40 days after Easter, it doesn't matter what you did the 40 days before Easter. Say like this, if we don't honor what happens after Easter, it doesn't matter what you do on Easter. So, so today is more of a celebration, in my opinion, it's more of a celebration than Easter Sunday because today those who have actually done anything with the resurrection look very different than everybody else. All right, so 40 is the number in Scripture, this is really interesting, 40 is the number in Scripture that represents the separation of two distinct, what the Bible, epochs. That word epoch means ages, okay? So the number 40 represents two distinct ages. So there was 40 days in the flood. Um, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days. Uh, there are 40 days of Lent, 40 days between resurrection and ascension, etc. You could go through the whole Old Testament, okay? So 40 is the number that separates two distinct ages. 
All right, so the 40 days leading up to Easter is a representation of an age shift. The 40 days after Easter is a representation of another age shift into what we call the last days. I say this a lot. It's not the last days because they're about to end. Like they're running out. It's the last days as in it's the last age. This is it. This is eternity. Welcome. Okay? I know a lot of people, man, we're living in the last days. Yes, we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Okay, welcome. Congratulations. So when you see the 40, the number 40 in scripture, you'll always see a shift in an age or as about an epoch is what that technical term is. So the church does a lot to celebrate Lent all over the place. But as soon as Easter day is over, everyone goes back to life as we knew it. And I wonder if we have such an issue with Christ likeness because we have rooted ourselves in an age of Adam and never transitioned by way of the cross and resurrection into a new age of new creation. Let me, say, let me re-say this one more time. Make sure you catch this, okay? I wonder if we, we have such an issue with people being like Christ. In fact, the most complaints I get towards me is the fact that I say I'm like Christ. Ironically, everybody else watching this, if you're saved, you're like Christ. So what I mean, I mean, that's what it means when you're made in his image and likeness. It's only one translation. You know what I'm saying? But, that, but I get that. So you, so you think you're like Christ? Yes. You know, I'm saved, right? You should be like Christ. If you're saved and you aren't like Christ, I would really, re, you have a responsibility to question if you've gotten saved. Not just an option. I mean, you, you really need to question that. But that's the thing, we have such an issue with Christ-likeness, I believe, because we have rooted ourselves so deeply in an Adam age and never honored the cross and resurrection to the point where it shifted us into a resurrected age that when we get into all the terminology of we are like Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ, we are co-seated with Christ, we are joined to Christ. When we start talking about that stuff, people have such an issue because really they're rooted in Adam. And Adam is none of those. Right? A- Adam isn't co-seated with Christ. I mean, unless he got saved. But you know what I'm saying? Adam is Adam. Christ came as the second Adam to fix all the stuff that the first Adam knocked out of order. So in order, so somebody said, like, well, let me just get through my notes real quick. So most celebrate how like Adam they are, either subconsciously or consciously. Most celebrate how like Adam they are. For example, I hear this all the time, especially how I grew up. I'm, man, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Man, I'm just, I'm just nothing. I'm just unworthy. You know, people say that all the time. It's, I think it's Mike Bickle, I want to say, uh, said this, that any idea you have about yourself that doesn't line up with the idea God has about you is pride. So a lot of people will say, man, man I'm, just, I'm just nothing. Thinking that they're running from pride. And what they're actually doing is, is stepping into pride because that's not how God sees you. You're not nothing to God. You are the one he chose out of all of them. You know what I'm saying? He, you were bought with a price. The price for your life cost the son of God his life. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people have died and a lot of people have spent money. Your life was worth so much, money couldn't purchase it. God himself had to come in the flesh and die to purchase your life because you're worth so much. So it is illegal for you to say, I'm just nothing. If you're nothing, Jesus should have never come. Okay. So let me say it like this. The the cross, and I said this last week, the cross is not a unique thing to Jesus. People people think that. Uh, The cross was very common. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people died by way of cross in that day. That was just the Roman way. So when they scream out, crucify him, they weren't coming up with something unique to do to Jesus. That's just what they did to criminals, okay? So just to be clear. But Jesus, ironically, we found found the cross that used to be up. I actually totally forgot we had it, but, uh, and put it up this week. So Jesus is on a cross, 
And literally the cross becomes a representation of Jesus splitting two ages. So when you start, you're Adam. When you go through the cross and enter into resurrection, on the other side of that, you're no longer Adam. You are as Christ. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Not Adam. So it's illegal to celebrate Lent without celebrating even more the age that was initiated by the only one who died on a cross and actually got back up. There, in fact, if you look throughout history, there were many, many, many different people who claimed to be a Messiah and died on a cross. The only difference is, is once they were buried, they stayed buried. One of those died on a cross and got back up three days later. So it's illegal to celebrate Adam, Lent, without celebrating even more the new age that was initiated by Jesus. There were not 40, but 10 days between the ascension and Pentecost. So there's 40 days between resurrection and ascension. There's 10 days between ascension and Pentecost. Because there wasn't a shift in age between ascension and Pentecost. There was something else. The number 10 is a combination. I'm just reading some Hebrew-like literature. The number 10 is a combination of the number four, which is the number of physical creation, okay? The first four days had to deal with physical creation. And after that, it had to deal with life being filled into that creation. So the number four is the number of physical creation, okay? The number six is the number of man. So the number 10 is the thought of completeness and order. Why? Because you're taking physical creation and man, you're putting them together, and in putting them together, you're aligning order. So that's what the number 10 is, is order, okay? So there was 40 days between resurrection and ascension, new age. There's 10 days between ascension and Pentecost, new order. So, this is where you get that idea. There were 10 commandments. God said, that phrase, God said in Genesis 1, is there 10 times in Genesis 1. A tithe is a tenth of our earnings. The Passover lamb was selected on the 10th day of the first month. Day 10 of the seventh month was the day of atonement, etc. Okay? So the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes to bring complete order to the new age that had just been initiated 40 days prior. Y'all following me? I know this is a lot. Are y'all with me? Some of y'all look like you're just like spinning. All right. So I can only imagine some of y'all right now are like, let's see what, well, never mind. I was going to say, never mind. Never mind. I was going to say another church. I'm not going to do that. All right. Let's see what so-and-so is doing today. All right. All that to say, today... We're going to continue into what it looks like to live in a new age of close and accessible. This is a lot of review. So what does, this is the question I want to ask today. Two questions. What does the resurrection mean? And then number two, what changes about us because of that resurrection? So today, I specifically want to talk about something that I've been talking about for a while, which is image bearing. That's, that's really what I want to talk about. So go to 2 Corinthians 3, and uh, some of y'all are going to be blown away when I say this. I'm actually not going to read this from the Passion Translation today. Um, I'm, well, I might actually, I might pull out the Passion Translation in a minute. But, um, but let me encourage you. So if you, um, if you get... You feel like you're kind of getting, um, I don't want to say bored, but getting um, at a plateau with Scripture and stuff like that. I want to encourage you, like, get a different translation and start reading it. It's like something about just different wording and stuff like that that just kind of reanimates everything. Um, so I've read First and Second Corinthians a million times. Um, but I got another translation and start reading it, and all of a sudden things are like brought to life that I've never seen before. So, uh, so if you feel like you're getting a little stagnant, that's the word I was looking for. If you feel like you're getting a little stagnant, just pick out another translation, a, a good translation. You know, like 
How, how far do I get? I, w- I probably wouldn't read the NIV, just me. I personally wouldn't read the ESV. That's just me. But you can read the ESV if you want. Um, and half the people just close their Bible. Sorry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the ESV is good. That was just a joke. I, know, I just said that because I know most people, people, you know, don't read the NIV. Um, <laughs> I'm just joking. But, but get, a, get a different translation. I'm actually going to be reading from the NRSV. It's on the Bible app. Um, but I love this. And uh, this is a, a translation. The base. Does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. Okay, just Google it later if you want to know. Uh, Don't send me an email. I won't read it. I'll delete it. Okay. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 3. uh, Did you say, try to guess 2 Corinthians 5? Yeah. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 3. Um, And then we'll be in, I think we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 5 actually in a minute. Uh, Yeah, we are. Okay, here we go. So let me read this. I'm going to read 7 through 18. All right, so listen to this. This is, this is unbelievable. Paul writes this. He's writing to the church of Corinth, and he writes this. He says, Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled into letters on stone tablets, came in glory, so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will the mission excuse me, the ministry of the Spirit come in glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. Indeed, what once had glory has lost its glory because of the greater glory. For if what was set aside came through glory, how much more has the permanent come in glory? That's a lot of glories right there. Okay, so since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. That right there, Paul starts poking at something that I don't know if he really wanted to get into. If you read through the Old Testament, you don't have the idea that the reason Moses put a veil over his face was to hide the fact that he was losing glory. If you read it in the book of Exodus, as Moses and and Exodus numbers Deuteronomy and the whole story of the Israelites and Moses leading them, if you read that story, the reason that you kind of get the feeling, you kind of get the feeling that the reason Moses put a veil over himself was to shield the glory from everybody else so that they wouldn't be blinded. It's kind of the feeling you get. Paul is saying something very different here. He says, Moses put a veil over his face to keep them from seeing the fact that he was actually losing the glory. Let me say it like this. Moses was putting a mask on to hide the fact that he wasn't carrying what he said he was carrying. Hello? Real good. I think that's what's happening right now. What's happening right now in the church is that you've had about a month of, in fact, I was going to save this for later. This week will be 40 days since our last service, in a normal service. So, uh, but you have a group of people right now, specifically in America, but all across the world, that haven't been at church and so what, what's happened is, is it's removed a couple of things. Number one, it's removed the fact that people can show up to church on Sunday and feel like they're a Christian because they go to church. Remove that. Number two, it's removed a pastor from being everybody else's God. Because that's what happens. Is a lot of people, nobody, most people, statistically, most pastors do not read the Bible. They'll read it for a sermon, and that's it. Statistically, 70% of pastors have admitted the only time they touch their Bible is to prepare a sermon. That's, that's statistics. So most people don't have a true relationship with Jesus. They have a relationship with a pastor who is supposed to have a relationship with Jesus. They become a Moses to the people. So it creates two things. It creates a group of people who are walking around with masks, Because everybody's supposed to be a holy priesthood, not just one. 
So the holy priesthood is walking around with a mask to hide the fact that they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And then the pastor is now having to wear a mask to hide the fact that he's not what everybody needs him to be. That's the phrase we get, the blind leading the blind. That's, that's, I mean, that's the definition of that phrase. I, I personally don't feel that. I know, there's nothing special about me. The Lord has killed it in me. I, I don't feel the pressure to be fake to anybody. I answer to the Lord, and that's it. You know what I'm saying? And so what that does is it creates freedom in me, and as it creates freedom in me, it creates freedom in you, and as it creates freedom in you, all masks are removed. But what's happening in this season is that people are having to take off their mask because there's not an opportunity to go out and show it off anymore. And as they're removing the mask, what is being seen on the other side of removing that mask is authenticity and what you're really dealing with and how little you actually spend time with the Lord, which is all a great thing, as we're about to see. Because there's one ministry that brings about a temporary glory, which is the ministry that you feel like you have to hide when it starts going away. Hello, 99% of American churches today. And then there's another ministry that is full of permanent glory that you don't have to hide anymore because it's always flowing from you. It's the ministry that Peter was walking down the street and all of a sudden his shadow starts healing people without him even knowing it. He wasn't even trying. Why? Because he had his mask totally ripped away and what glory was flowing from his life was authentic glory. Okay, so... Uh, It's not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside, verse 14. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, listen to this, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the old covenant, that same veil is still there since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Whew. Now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? The veil. And all of us, With unveiled faces, I want you to hear this right here. We're going to spend some time on this. With unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, from glory to glory. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. One more time. One more time, one more time. All of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory for this comes from the Lord. All right, so in verse 14, it says, it's talking about those who hear the old covenant, those before Christ, okay? The, uh, the posers, the ones that wear the mask is who he's talking to, Okay. Um, And even specifically, he's really referring to a lot of Jews. Um, But he says this, he says, Those, uh, their minds were hardened indeed to this very day when they hear the reading of the old covenant, the same veil is still there since only in Christ is it set aside. Who are they that still have a veil when they hear? It's those who are stuck in an age that is actually no longer even existing. There's those who are entertaining. There's a lot of Christians who are entertaining Adam. And if you are saved, Adam no longer exists. So to entertain Adam is to entertain a delusion. That doesn't exist. For you to bring up to the Lord something about your Adam nature, he has no clue what you're talking about because that doesn't exist to him anymore. Where do you think he cast it as far as the east is from the west? What do you think that means? If he cast it as far as the east is from the west, guess what's not coming back? The thing he cast as far as the east is from the west. So we need to become a people who instead of bringing our Adam delusion to the Lord, we instead look in a mirror and bring the glory back to the Lord that we're reflecting from the Lord. 
That's what worship is. So we're not worshiping from a place of humble and, uh, I mean, I guess sincere humility. But we're not worshiping from a place of false humility and I'm nothing and I'm just sad and I'm down and I'm depressed and blah, blah, blah. But thank you for the, what we're doing is we're reflecting glory back to him. So the song they were singing this morning, I just love you. What, what is that doing? Is we're receiving love and then we're reflecting it back. Y'all, are y'all with me? Okay, okay. I know it's been a while, but. <clears throat> so Paul is referring to Jews who didn't believe in the Messiah, that Jesus of Nazareth was, that Nazareth was the Messiah. Uh, but the correlation stands. They were stuck in an old age. Jesus had come, and because they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, they were stuck in an age that was still waiting for a Messiah that had actually already come. They were waiting for something that had already been accomplished. The veil kept them from seeing that they were actually already on the other side of what they were stuck. This reminds me of the Israelites in, in the wilderness. They get in the wilderness and they're on their way to the promised land. And the whole way they're saying, man, if we had just stayed in Egypt. If we, man, that was so much better than this. If we had just been. What they're doing is they're living in delusion. They can't go back to Egypt. It's, Egypt's over. They're in the wilderness. And so they keep looking back. When the Lord keeps trying to tell them to look ahead to a promised land where they won't be slaves, but at least they'll have food, they will be the ones who reap from a land that they did not sow. In Egypt, they were the ones that sowed for other people to reap. In the promised land, they were the reapers of what other people sowed. I'll take the second. Just like Lot's wife. They were leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, but because she could not look ahead, she turned around and immediately turned into salt. So the same happens today, this veiling. There are two polar opposite reactions to teaching. Let's just say, for example, like this. This is what we've seen from the very beginning. There's, there's two reactions to anything that comes from this church. Two reactions. Number one, that's the devil. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. Number two, that's the Lord. That's everything I've ever wanted. There's, we, I, don't, I never hear in between. It's either praise the Lord, the Lord is moving, or you're the devil, you stink, your hair's weird, whatever. You know what I'm saying? But, so that, I hear those two. I never hear, oh, that's, that's okay. And, and I've been a lot of places where that's all I heard. I've been a lot of places, because I've been in ministry, I'm 28, but I've been in ministry a long time. And I've been in a lot of places where people are just like, eh, that's good. Worship's all right. Preaching's all right today. It's real, just, real, just real steady, real gray. And I'm just trying to create a gray. I'm trying to create a place where either you got a veil or you don't. And it's going to be very apparent. You know what I mean? Either you want to be hot or you can be cold. But this is not a place where we're going to be great, especially now. Because what's going to happen is, is in a few weeks, when we go back to life as normal, the beaches are open up tomorrow, retail is open up tomorrow, all that stuff. When we get back to normal, what's going to happen is, is a flood of people coming into the church. So for a couple of weeks, we're going to be packed. I, just, I, don't, need, I don't need to be prophetic to tell you that. We'll be, in fact, today, we just said, hey, a few of our leaders, if you want to show up, awesome. And the room's pretty much full. Okay, so when we come back, but then here's what's going to happen. About four weeks later, you know what's going to happen? We'll be back to about the same crew we had. Why? Because they're going to come in here and the Lord is going to love them enough to allow them to make the decision, let me remove the veil or keep the veil on, but you cannot keep the veil on in the presence. I was reminded this week, man, y'all, this is so dangerous for y'all to be in here today. Um, we might be here till five, but <laughs> Daniel says, okay. Everybody else is like, Daniel, stop. <laughs> Ellen's just thinking about McDonald's, right? <laughs> We've eaten more McDonald's. No, not me. Um, Hello, fresh. Um, it's probably a good idea. Do they do toilet paper? You have toilet paper. We also we take cash donations and we also take toilet paper donations. Um, just kidding. But 
In 1 Samuel, let me, let me just chase this rabbit for a minute. In 1 Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant is taken. So the Philistines attack, I believe this is 1 Samuel uh, 4 or 5. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, I think it's 1 Samuel 4. The Ark of the Covenant, so the Philistines go against Israel. They defeat Israel, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken. So the Philistines, is it 4? 5, 5, chapter 5, thank you. Um, so the Ark of the Covenant is taken. The Philistines place the Ark of the Covenant right next to their god, Dagon. So it's a fake god, false god. But they take it into that temple and they place the Ark of the Covenant right next to that god. Do you know what they find the next morning? They find that god's face down on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. So they fix it back up. You know what happens the next day? They come back in, the arms are cut off, and the God's face is down on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. And all of a sudden, everybody starts getting tumors, and the Lord sends plagues, and all this other crazy stuff. But here's the point, is that when you get in the authentic presence of God, and this is why a lot of people don't want to be in the authentic presence of God, if we're being real. When you get in the presence of God, all your idols start falling at his feet. Whether or not you want it, they do. Every one of your idols start falling at the feet of the presence of the Lord. So because people don't like that, we create services where the presence of the Lord is just enough to wet our whistle, but not so much that people's idols come toppling down. Because if that happens, everybody leaves. But I'm trying to create a group of people that are ready for an age that idols are no longer existent. The new heaven and new earth has no idols. So if we're trending into new heaven and new earth territory, the first thing that's going to have to happen is all the idols being fallen down, being cast down before the feet of the one that the presence is so thick that the ark of his presence causes all the other gods to fall at his feet. Go back and read that. It's, it's, it's such a cool story. 1 Samuel 5 through 8, I believe. So go back and read that. So uh, let me read this, verse 16 and 17. We're still in 2 Corinthians. Uh, bring it back. That was a fun little rabbit. Uh, verses 16 and 17, chapter 3 says this. Uh, to this very day when Moses is read, a veil lies over their mind. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay? And I said this before. Where is freedom headed towards? The veil. You can't be free until your veil is removed. So, so stop, stop praying, Lord, free me from this, free me from this, free me from this. If that's something that you're praying over and 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 you're not seeing any breakthrough, it might be because there's a veil. And he won't go after that before he goes after the veil first. Verse 18 says, all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into his same image, glory to glory. If you're looking in a mirror, if you're looking in a mirror, just just think about this for a second. Okay, remember, we are image bearers, made in his image and likeness to subdue the earth and be fruitful. Okay, if you're looking in a mirror, what do you see? I mean, it's not a trick, it's not a trick question. You, you see yourself. Hold up. Right? Reflect in a mirror. I believe this is one of the most amazing statements in the whole letter of 2 Corinthians, right here. As they're reflected in a mirror. Paul is literally saying, we reflect the glorious image of God if we let him unveil us. That's, that's literally what he's saying. So in other words, when you look in a mirror, what do you see? You see your image reflected. So when God looks at us, he sees his image reflected. Think about this. So Paul is declaring that we have received our original design again, which is what we've been talking about the past few weeks, image bearers. But he says... The, the divide standing between you being your design, image bearer, and you not being your design, the other law, is a veil. 
What was torn when Jesus died in the temple? The veil. So what, what is he trying to teach us? He's teaching us that the presence of the Lord is no longer contained in a temple in Jerusalem. Now the presence of, of the Lord is contained in a temple called you and I. Whew. So Jesus, let me say like this. In, in Ezekiel, the presence, I know this is a lot, but I've been, I've been just stirred in this for a little bit. In Ezekiel, the presence of the Lord, he sees this grand vision and the presence of the Lord leaves the temple. So think about this. All the way back in Exodus, Moses creates this tabernacle in the wilderness for the presence of the Lord. All the way back then. So all the way up till this point in Ezekiel, the presence of the Lord has been there with the people. If you asked ancient people where the present, where on earth as it is in heaven was, if you brought up that to people that were uh, Israelites or ancient Jews and said, hey, uh, Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do you think that means? All of them would have said the temple. Because that in the Holy of Holies is, is the place where Yahweh and man met in one location. It was literally the transition between heaven and earth. So Jesus comes, remember in Ezekiel, the presence of the Lord leaves the temple. And you go throughout the Old Testament, they rebuild the temple, they do all that stuff. But there's never anywhere in scripture that says that after that Ezekiel encounter, that the presence of the Lord rolls back in, explodes in the temple, and they have the same type of temple life as they did before. Nowhere else. Until John 1. And it says, the word became flesh, and dwelt is a pretty good translation. The better translation would be, the word became flesh, talking about Jesus, and tabernacled among us tabernacled among us. So what was Jesus? He did a lot of stuff on the Sabbath. He didn't do that just to prod the religious people. Maybe, maybe some, I don't know. But he didn't do that just to poke at people. He did a lot of stuff on the Sabbath because Jesus was trying to show them that the temple was no longer the place in Jerusalem in that one location. The temple was now within a man carrying the same power that raised eventually Christ Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God that was contained in the Holy of Holies now was contained in a man, Yeshua. So he goes out and he starts healing the sick. He starts raising the dead. He starts preaching things like, take my load, it's easy, and my burden, it's light. He's preaching all this stuff. Really what he's doing is he, he is encountering people in a way that they would have encountered God in the temple. Except he wasn't in the temple. He was out in the world. So he ascends, Pentecost happens, and then you continually have this idea that we are the temple of the Lord, both individually and corporately as a church. Why? Because the Holy of Holies is now you and I. The presence of the Lord that was in the Holy of Holies with the ark is now within you and I. So why is this huge? Because what Paul is saying is, is once that veil is torn within you, remember what happened when Jesus died? The veil was torn into the Holy of Holies. What happens when the veil in your temple is torn and removed is that now the glory that was contained behind a veil is now open to be reflected to the world. Are y'all with me? So that's how he says, the Lord is the spirit where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Having to hide the veil. So if we now with unveiled faces are seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, that means when you look in the mirror, you cannot look at yourself and say, that person's ugly. That person's not good enough. That person's not talented enough. That person doesn't have enough friends. That person doesn't have a good enough social media. That person doesn't have the job that she always wanted or he always wanted. That person doesn't have a relationship that they always wanted. You can't do that anymore. Why? Because your reflection is the glory of God. So I, I this is convicting for me, I have to be able to look in the mirror and stare myself in the eyes and say, that looks like the one that died for me. Jesus, I said this, Jesus said this, John 14, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They, they, what, what kind of statement is that? Jesus is saying that as a man. 
as the last Adam. If, if you see, they say, if you just show us the Father, we'll believe. Jesus says, I'll tell you what, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And all of them are looking around like, is that what he looks like? You know what I'm saying? I should be able to live a life, I should be able to live a life that if people come to me and say, for example, in this coronavirus thing, let's just say this. Man, if we, if we could just see the Lord, man, we'd believe. We'd believe that he's in control. If we could just see it. If we could see the Lord move, we'd believe it. I should be able to say, I'll tell you what, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Don't email me. Right? I'm going to stop saying that. But I'm telling you, like, don't send me anything. I'm, I'm so bold right now. I've got a fire in me I've never had before. And, I'm, I, and I, I will not back down from true theology. I won't do it. I'm going to correct all the wrong theology as well. Because I'm not just a father in Colombia. I'm a father in America raising up sons who are also going to be fathers and daughters who are also going to be mothers. And we've got to get this right. You are the image of the glory of God. You are not the image of the sin of Adam. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are condemned no more. Your judgment has been given. People say, that, people say this uh, lately. God is judging the world. Correction. God's judgment is a good thing. People have this idea that he's ready to blow up the earth. He's not going to blow up the earth. Okay? So stop thinking that. But if he's going to blow up the earth, that means we have nowhere else to live for eternity because this is going to be the new heaven and new earth. If it's blown up, that's it. Okay? Hello. So Jesus, being a judge, God being a judge, is a great thing. In fact, we have a whole book of the Bible dedicated to what it looks like for God to be a judge. And it's called the book of Judges. Right? And you have judge after judge after judge after judge after judge. And what are they doing? They're making sure the Israelites are kept safe and secure. All throughout the book of Psalms, do you know what's happening? David crying out for God to bring judgment. Why? Why would he do that? Because judgment ain't aimed at him. Judgment's aimed at his enemies. You've been judged. Not guilty. You've already been judged. So for God to bring his judgments would be for him to put an end to everything else that is an enemy of the Lord. So I'm praying, Lord, judge us so that we can get beyond this coronavirus. Because he's not aiming it at you and I. He's aiming it at the coronavirus. Okay, hello. So, hey, Veda. Jordan just said, Daddy seems mad. I'm not mad, I'm just passionate. So, hey, let me stop right here. I meant to do this earlier. Real quick, real quick, real quick. Will Crow, real quick. Uh, and I just want to say hey to Gabe and Will and Grayson and Crew and Weston and Journey and Veda. And am I missing anybody? Juliana, Leah, Hosanna, everybody else. Uh, I say Veda's name every week, but just so everybody can be focused in, that's going to save you about 10 minutes right there. So, Because for the next 10 minutes, they're going to be talking about how I said their name. So there you go. Focus in for the next 10 minutes. Um, but hey, we miss you guys. We'll be back together soon. Awesome. So, um, but I am so happy. This is what happiness looks like. I, I had that, you know, like that zeal of the Lord. I just, I just feel that flowing all in me. Like we got one chance. We... The church has been in a, like, we've been in exile. Not us. But the church has been in exile. It has. You know, the Bible says the reason the Israelites were sent into exile, so that Yahweh could clean the land. I, and I wonder how much cleaning he's be, been doing in the church. I hope a lot. Oh, man, I can see the, I can just see that the, the viewers just ticking down. All right. How you view yourself is subconsciously how you view God and how you believe God views you. You're a mirror. So how you view yourself is two things. Subconsciously, how you view God, because you're reflecting him. So how you view yourself is how you view him, because you're reflecting him. But then on the other side of it, how you view yourself is how you think he views you. 
So people have such an issue with Song of Songs because they have a bad view of themselves. So they don't, they don't think they're worthy of love. So when it talks about extravagant love, they have an issue with it. Why? Because they don't think he loves them extravagantly. Why don't they think they love, he loves them extravagantly? Because they don't love themselves extravagantly. So th- th- this is very thought-provoking. In se- that he's tell- You are a mirror. How you view yourself determines how, he views, how you think he views you. And how you view yourself really determines how you view him. Okay. So, if you think you're not good enough, you have to believe he doesn't see you as good enough. And if he doesn't see you as good enough, he's got to be seen as really not good enough. This all starts with how you view the one you see in the mirror. Do you see Yeshua reflected? Or do you see an Adam-stained image of someone who disappoints? When you look in the mirror, do you see a disappointment? Or do you see the treasure that was in a field that he was willing to sell everything to buy the field for? Paul says we're being transformed into the same image. That word transformed is the word metamorpho. Metamorpho is where we get the English word metamorphosis, okay? Which is the word, is the exact word that is used for Jesus when he is transfigured. So when he says we're being transformed into the same image, that translation is literally we're being transfigured into the same image. So Jesus' transfiguration not only pointed to his resurrected body, it actually pointed to ours. Okay, I I can see y'all winding down, so I'm going to get towards the end. So how did we get here? How did we get from those who reflected the image of death and sin to those who reflected the image of Jesus? And this is where I'm going to end. Go over two chapters to 2 Corinthians 5, um, which Spencer prophetically said we were going to be at. And... uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we're going to start, and I'm going to just read a few verses. Uh, Brennan Manning, which has become one of my favorite author, authors, but uh, he says, um, and of course this isn't divine, this is just his opinion, but that the word reconciliation or to reconcile is the most important word in, all, in the whole New Testament. Um, but let me, let me just read something really interesting. So how did we get from Adam to now being image bearers of the Christ? Okay, this is how. Chapter five, verse 17. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Sounds really familiar. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, what, <clears throat> excuse me, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, their sin, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you, on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin, so that, excuse me, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whoo! So, the word reconcile that God reconciled us, the act of reconciling, and then the ministry or message of reconciliation are actually two different words. They're from the same root word, but they're actually two different words. We don't get this in the English. So the word reconcile, the act, so what God did for us, is the word katalasso in the Greek, and that word means to exchange or to reconcile. Here, here's the definition in the, uh, in the lexicon. It says this about this word. This is when two distinct parties reconcile when changing to the same position. So I know, I know your brains are fried. Just right here, hang with me for a second. To reconcile 
is when two distinct parties come together or change to the same position. So here's, here's what that means. It means, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there were two distinct parties, God and us, and by reconciling us, he exchanged what he had with what we had so that on the other side of the exchange, we had the same thing. I mean, this is huge, right? What kind of God is this? What kind of love is this that he would take his position and lower it, Philippians, so that we could from our position be raised with him? That tells you the value he puts on your life, that he was willing to humble himself so that he could exalt you. So what kind of love is that? In, in marriage, in marriage, this has to work like this, is that I am not working to exalt myself and think everybody else in my household is going to exalt me. I'm actually working to lower myself and exalt everybody else, right? So my job as a husband primarily is to make sure my wife feels like she's the greatest thing that's ever hit planet earth. My job as a husband is not for her to serve me, it's for me to serve her. And it goes back, husbands submit, wives submit to your husbands is actually husbands then going back and resubmitting to the wife. And you got this infinite submission, 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 submission. And as you do and you become less, he becomes greater. Beautiful. So what, what Paul is talking about is that Christ reconciled us to God. He lowered himself so that we could be raised. So that's number one. That's what the act of reconciling means. But here's number two. Paul then goes on to say that he has given us the message of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. That word is actually a different word. The second word, the message that they preach, is the word catalage. So the first one's catalasso. The second one's catalogue, from the same root word, but two different words. The second word means restored to favor. So because of the act of reconciling, now we preach the message you've been restored to favor. Maybe it's just, maybe I, I guess I'm the only one that thinks this stuff is awesome, but think about it. The church in Corinth is hearing this for the first time ever. This had never been preached before. They're hearing this. Christianity was a brand new thing. They had just been introduced to it. Before that, they were in this Greek world with all these different gods and all these different religions crammed into one. And now all of a sudden, they encounter the God of the universe and they're hearing things like, remember, all the gods they had ever served were gods, fake gods, not real, that all they wanted was for them to serve them. Worship me, sacrifice to me, give things to me, all that stuff. But now they're hearing about a God who actually, instead of wanting something from them, gave up everything he had so that they could have something from him. Think about that. How, how different is that from everything else? In fact, that's one of the reasons why Christianity survived so long, obviously because it's real, but the other reason is because it's, it contrasts every other religion in every other way. That every other religion is all based on what I can give to the God. Christianity is based on what God wanted to give to you. And that's not made, you can't, that's not, you can't make that up. Uh, unbelievable. That the Lord is the groom to the church, you and I, the bride. So he's constantly humbling himself so that he can exalt us. And as we're exalted because we reflect his very image, us being exalted is actually him being exalted. Because when people look at us, they see him. 
So, so he didn't want people to look at him and see him. He wanted people to look at us and see him. Because in the process, we're being brought into a divine duet where both parties get lifted into a level of glory that is glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. He did not want to go from glory to glory without us, which is exactly why he rigged the system like he did. Instead of me remaining on earth forever, I'm instead going to be ascended to the Father and I'm going to send my spirit into everybody else. So now where there was one image of the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now every single person filled with the spirit is the image that can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why, why would he do that? Because one day he's coming back for a pure and spotless bride, not a pure and spotless servant. He didn't want a bunch of servants. He wanted a, he wanted a partner. So in your prayer life, you're not praying as a servant begging for something. You're praying as a bride. I, 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 that really messes with people. But let me just ask you a question. Let me just ask you a question. How far do we go? How much power does Jordan have to make decisions for our family? Well, 100% probably. But ideally, half the power. Right? I go to Jordan. I say, I think we should do this. She comes to me and says, well, I think we should do this. And together, we make a decision. That's what prayer is. I know, I re I know that messes with people. Again, I'm trying to correct some stuff we've gotten wrong. That's what we've gotten wrong. Like, Lord, people, you know why people fast? They're trying to pull God's arm. They think if I fast enough, he'll answer my prayer. Wrong. Might as well go eat. You know what I'm saying? Right? It's like, like, like if, I, if I can just fast, if I fasted for 40 days, man, I'd heal everybody. And, no. In fact, that's why a lot of people aren't healing anybody. <laughs> Sorry. Right? But, but, if you could start seeing, that's why people don't pray. Nobody prays because they think they're throwing, they're just throwing up words into outer space that probably won't ever make it to him anyway because he's so far off. We're just throwing up words, like, please, this is how I used to pray. Lord, if you'll answer, if you'll just do this for me, I'll never lie about having gum again. In high school, that's what I'll, ne I'll never lie to my parents again. If you'll, just, if you'll just do this, I'll never do that again. And that's not what he's looking, that's what a servant does. That's, in fact, that's what a slave does. That's not what he wants. He wants a bride to come to him and say, you know what? I think this needs to happen. What do you think? And then he says, you know what? I think this needs to happen. What do you think? Because I've got the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead in me. It's about praying in the Spirit. It's so important. Because as you pray in the Spirit, the bride and Christ are praying in the same frequency together. That's what happens. When you pray in, the, in your prayer language, that's what's happening. Is you're praying in the frequency that he's praying in. And as those frequencies meet, it's the bride and groom coming together, making a unified decision. So as I've been praying over this coronavirus thing, a lot of that has been praying in the Spirit. Why? Because everything flowing from me in the Spirit is everything flowing from Him. And as those things line up, things in the earth begin to be brought back into order from the frequency that said, let there be light, and it responded. Where am I? All right. I'm trying to cut down on some stuff. I've got so much, so much, so much. Okay, I hit all that. All right, so the first sign creation has been restored. This is the end. Daniel, you can go ahead and hop up here. The first sign creation has been restored is mankind bearing his image. The, the first sign to the cosmos that we've shifted into a new age is when man gets its image back. That's the number one sign. It's looking at us. Remember Romans 8, 19 through 21. All of creation standing on tiptoe, yearning to see the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. 
So it's standing on tiptoe. Why is it doing that? It's standing on tiptoe, looking at our image. And the minute that image shifts from Adam to Christ, all of a sudden it's looking at that image saying, man's got its image back. And if man's got its image back, then the garden must be getting its image back. And if the garden gets its image back, then we reinstate the original command, which was to be fruitful and multiply and subdue, bring into dominion the entire globe. So that's the process. The process of where this is going is not rapture. The process of where this is going is you get your image back, I'll get my image back, number one. Number two, we get our garden back. Where's the garden? Within. Okay, remember Song of Songs, All right? So you get our, your image back, I get my image back, we get our garden back, and when we get our garden back, what happens? We begin to be fruitful and multiply. What are we multiplying? A bunch of ministry people? No. We're multiplying image bearers. And as we multiply image bearers across the cosmos, what begins to happen is, is they get brought back into alignment with the original intent for everything, which John says in Revelation 21 is, Behold, I saw a new heaven and new earth ascending from the heavenly realm. That was like a whole theology lesson in about two minutes right there. Okay? That's what this is. If you pick up your Bible and read this, everything I just said is what you'll see throughout the whole thing. He, he, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So I want to ask a couple of questions. This is the end of my notes. Uh, number one, number one, do you currently have any shred of a veil? Number one question, do you currently have a veil? Like when, when you hear some of this stuff, is your first reaction to say, man, I don't know about that. I mean, that, that's, that's the veil. That's the veil speaking. I'm not speaking anything on my own. I just quoted a hundred scriptures in that whole message just then. Okay? So it's not me. I didn't go to college. I had no degree. All I know is Christ and Him crucified. That's all I know. So everything I just told you is all scripture. So when you hear this, is your gut reaction or your kickback a writ? Is it, man, I just don't know. I just don't know about that. That's a veil. So do you currently have a veil? Okay? Number two, do you look at yourself as his image bearer? When you, when you look at yourself, do you see Jesus or do you see Adam? Do you see the mistakes you've made or do you see the righteousness that he's given you as a gift? And then the last question, and I'm going to be really cautious as I ask this. Do you look enough like Jesus? So not only do you look like Jesus, how much like Jesus do you look? First and second Corinthians um, is, is very heavy on the idea of holiness, very heavy, because he's writing to a brand new church that was encountering the Holy Spirit in a way that very few people up to that point had encountered but they had no concept of any of this stuff. This is brand new. So First and Second Corinthians is all about order and holiness. But when your Bible was put together, I've been saying this for about a week. This isn't, this isn't like Paul, I don't think Paul intended for this to happen. But when you get your Bible and it was put together, do you know the book that precedes First and Second Corinthians? Romans. So in other words, and what is the book of Romans all about? Especially Romans 8, Romans 5. It's all about righteousness. So we always, at least growing up, we viewed righteousness as what you get by earning it through holiness. So, so we saw holiness as a way to attain righteousness. But what Paul is teaching and the Lord is trying to show us is that it's actually backwards you have to go through righteousness to get into holiness. So holiness doesn't fuel you to attain righteousness. Righteousness 
fuels you to attain holiness. So I'm, I'm right in his eyes. Therefore, this is how I live in order. So why don't I go party? Why don't I, you know, just say whatever I want to say? Why don't I look at whatever I want to look? Paul says it like this. Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Right? Why don't I do that stuff? Because I'm the righteousness of God. Because he sees me as right, I'm going to live to give him the reward of the suffering that gave me the identity as righteous. Which is living in a way that Jesus lived. I'm not earning anything. I'm living out what I've been given as a gift. That's what holiness is. And so when I say, do you look enough like Jesus? This is what I mean, is that he's given you full access and complete righteousness in your life. What have you done with it? When you look in the mirror, you should see righteousness. But when you live your life and you go into your work and you go to the grocery store and somebody cuts you off or somebody takes the last pack of toilet paper in the grocery store that you really need, when stuff like that happens, what is your reaction? Is it what you do out of righteousness or is it going back to Adam that actually doesn't exist anymore? And I'm, to be honest, I'm kind of done with the caveat with everything that we say being Hey, I'm going to say this, but just as a reminder, there's no condemnation. Like, we, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing that. There should be an assumption among us that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 says, because of that, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, now that we are the righteousness of God, now we've got to understand what it looks like to live as those who are the righteousness of God, which is holiness. I'm not talking about how you dress. I'm talking about how you live. It's not about wearing skirts and no makeup. That's not, that's not what holiness is. That's, that's veil. Holiness is you looking like who you are, Righteous. Righteous people live very different than unrighteous people. Man. Where do we go? Where do we go? Can y'all just bow your heads if you're watching this at home? I said this in worship, but I, I just think we need to understand. We, we're, in a, we're in a Sabbath right now. I'm not talking about because things are closed. I'm talking about the Lord. He's been doing this for a while now, for months now for us. But what, like, what does it mean to rest? What does it mean to live a life of rest? And I think the first stage of that is understanding everything I just said, that you are nothing apart from the image that you've been given. Yet because of the image you've been given, you're actually everything. How, how can you be nothing yet everything at the same time? Because I mean, that's what we are. I must decrease and he must increase, John the Baptist said. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more information, visit dreamcolumbia.com.